Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Professor Emeritus at Duke University School of Medicine, Alan Francis, M.D., uh, his new book is Saving Normal, an Insider Revolts Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Everyday Life. And he asks the question, is grief a useful, inevitable, and poignant sign of a broken heart, or is it a major depressive disorder? Are you nervous about an upcoming job interview, or do you have mixed anxiety depression? Dr. Alan Francis was the chairperson of the DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for for Task Force and part of the leadership group for DSM-3 and DSM-3 Revised. But with the newly published DSM-5, Dr. Francis finds himself the leading critic of the revision and is on a passionate quest to save what is considered, quote, normal. His work has been featured in Time, Wired, The New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, etc. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Well, it's my pleasure, and I think this is an important topic. I'm glad we have an opportunity to discuss it with one another. I am, too. Uh, You know, I think we talked a little bit before the show, who is my audience? I mean, we have audience people out there, listeners who are professionals, psychiatrists, social workers, people in the healthcare professions who know what the DSM-3 is and the DSM-5, but we have others who don't. So can we just start out, can you explain what it is the Bible for uh, healthcare professionals in terms of diagnoses? Could you give us a short explanation of what exactly the DSM-5 is? Sure. Really, it shouldn't be a Bible, but it has become way too important in our lives. It's a system for uh, diagnosing people that decides who's well and who has a psychiatric disorder. And that makes perfect sense uh, when a clinician is working with a patient. But the manual has become way too important. It it sort of governs now drug advertising. Uh, The drug companies have learned that to sell pills, the best thing to do is sell ills, to sell psychiatric diagnoses. It's way too important in the terms of disability. Um, It's way too important in the school systems that in order to get into a smaller class, you need a psychiatric diagnosis of attention deficit disorder or autism. So the rates of these disorders have skyrocketed. It's way too important in the VA. We have one-fourth of our troops returning from battle getting a diagnosis of PTSD when many of them would be better uh, off if they were given more benefits without having a diagnosis. Way too important in disability determinations. If someone gets laid off from work, it's very likely that the only way they'll be able to pay the rent is if they have a diagnosis of depression. And once on disability, they may never work again. So my concern is that we're over-diagnosing people with labels that are easy to give, very, very difficult to take away, and that very often misleads to medication treatments that may do a lot more harm than good. Well, it seems to me, I mean, it's a slippery slope as you're describing it, as I'm listening to you. So what happens? So we over-diagnose in order for people to get treatment, whether it's children or adults. Uh, it seems to me the motivating factor behind some of this is money for the big pharmaceutical companies, because once you get diagnosed, that means you have a problem, that means you're ill, like a physical illness, um, or it's equated similar to a physical illness, so that means you need medication, you need pharmaceuticals. What are the consequences of that? 
if anything can be misused in the DSM, it will be misused. And Big Pharma has the means and the motive to take advantage of every loophole to try to convince people with misleading marketing and advertising that they're ill. The drug companies make about $50 billion a year in the U.S. alone on psychiatric drugs. It's a major part of their business. They don't spend a whole lot of money on real research. They spend most of their money on marketing, on controlling politicians, and on research that will extend the patent life of their drugs so that they can keep the monopoly price gouging. In the United States and only in New Zealand, only these two countries, the drug companies have the right to advertise directly to consumers. People, drug company executives in Europe can't believe this, that in the U.S. we allow this constant advertising of, of psychiatric illness as a way of convincing people to go, and the quote always is, ask your doctor, to ask your doctor for a pill. Turns out when a patient does ask a doctor for a pill, they're 20 times more likely to get it and the doctor has been primed. He has beautiful salespeople. Drug companies hire the most beautiful people in the world this side of Hollywood. Yep. And they kind of look like supermodels when you go into the doctor's office. If you go into a physician's office and you'll see these kind of really, they look like models or they look like actresses walking around with their little black bags selling their medication or to the doctors. And, you know, they're sincere. They really believe in the product. They usually will have had a relative who had the problem. Um, once in the door, they're the major educators of a lot of doctors. They tell a storyline that is um, very, very convincing, that psychiatric disorders are underdiagnosed, that they're really easy to diagnose, that they're due to a chemical imbalance, and that, therefore, they require a pill for treatment. Now, the really amazing and, and disturbing thing is that 80%, get that, 80% of psychiatric medication is prescribed not by psychiatrists after careful evaluation, um, thorough diagnosis, and thoughtful treatment planning. 80% of psychiatric medication is prescribed by primary care doctors. Often they have uh, little training in psychiatry. They're overwhelmed with patients. They average about seven minutes per person. Their uh, education in psychiatry often comes from that beautiful drug salesperson. And they're given free samples. Never really free, but the free starters. It's almost like drug pushing beginning with a free sample. So we have a, a country now that is absolutely flooded with psychiatric medication. 20% of our population takes a psychiatric pill every day. 6% are addicted to them. We now have, especially because of the uh, flooding of the market with uh, prescription narcotics and the terrific overuse of, of benzodiazepines, we now have more deaths, more deaths from overdose of prescription drugs than from car accidents. Well, in your we book, have, you say that the primary care physicians who you're talking about uh, are are to blame for this over diagnosis and medication. That they prescribed eighty percent of the psychotropic drugs. I mean, eighty percent. Because I and I think the average the layperson would think, oh, if you you know you go to a psychiatrist, it was going to prescribe medication. So you're talking about doctors who are not really trained. Uh, who are prescribing 80% of these psychotropic drugs, which with children then leads to uh, addiction problems or addiction. Well, even worse with adults, and it's, it's, I don't mean to, to say that psychiatrists aren't, aren't part of this problem, but they're only a small part. The drug companies realized that there were many, many more primary care doctors than there were psychiatrists. So what they've done is 
focus on the patients with all this advertising, focus on the primary care doctors, and the most scandalous of all the markets is the nar- prescription narcotics. If this becomes a, a gateway, once the um, person needs more pills than they can get with copays, what's the next step? Very often to heroin, because the heroin, believe it or not, is cheaper than prescription drugs. But how, so do you have, get, how do you get past, as a social worker, the attitude, well, I went to the doctor, he or she prescribed this medication, and let's say you're the social worker uh, treating this person in counseling. There is medication available, uh, whether it's the adult or the, the parent of the child, and the, the physician sort of has an attitude, I think, of making the, 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 the person feel guilty if they don't take the medication, that here it is, it's available, it's going to help you. Um, obviously, they don't describe it as a quick fix or don't give you alternatives. That's another thing. Don't you need alternatives if you're going in there and, and perhaps, you know, you're talking about PTSD or grief or whatever or anxiety. Doesn't the physician then have to offer you an alternative to medication? Well, the sad truth is that the drug industry spends uh, billions and billions of dollars advertising, and the, the best alternative for, for mild to moderate problems, well, first of all, time is a wonderful alternative. People get better on their own with their own resilience and support and reduction of stress. Exercise is a wonderful alternative, and psychotherapy is a wonderful alternative. It's, it's equal to uh, drugs for the short term and much better for the long term in problems that are mild to moderate. But you don't hear that. There are no advertisements on TV for psychotherapy or for exercise because it's not a a huge industry with a tremendous marketing budget. Now, let's be clear. There are many people in our country, maybe 5% of the population, who need medication, sometimes desperately. And that 5% who have severe mental illness can't get it. We have very inadequate resources for people who are really sick. And because of that, we have one million of them in jail and many hundreds of thousands homeless. So we have this terrible paradox. We're way over-treating people who don't need it, and we're shamefully neglecting people who do. It is terrible that we have all of these people with psychiatric problems in jail because they couldn't get an appointment, couldn't get proper medicine. Also, no one listening to this program should ever stop medicine on their own. The the, uh, decision to start medicine should be a very serious one. We shouldn't be doing it casually the way we are now, but the decision to stop it also has to be cautious because a lot of these medicines have withdrawal effects. It has to be done really slowly under medical supervision. Otherwise, a person can have much worse symptoms than they would have had uh, before they took the medication. Okay. Given that, we understand that. Uh, hopefully, we understand that. So anyone who's listening to the show, don't obviously stop your medication. You have to do that through a physician. But um, can we, like, how did we get to this point? You're talking about, like, this DSM-5, for instance, which has just described all kinds of what we may call normal reactions to um, to loss and grief, et cetera, or different kinds of uh just sort of activities of daily life that we have to adjust to. Um, how did, who was behind this? Who wrote, you know, who were the people who were the ones who actually put the DSM-5 together? Well, this goes way back before DSM-5, and there are several different forces that all conspire to commercialize medicine and psychiatry and to result in overdiagnosis and overtreatment. The diagnostic system that we have now was first conceived in 1980 at a time of underdiagnosis. And it was conceived for clinical practice, and it was before the drug companies had the power, the advertising power they do now. So that, that system is too loose. 
the diagnostic system in general is too loose. But then it gets worse. You take a loose diagnostic system and you advertise it like crazy and you convince people who are having the, uh, the problems of everyday life, the human condition, the difficulties that are inherent in, in being alive and turning them into mental disorder, convincing the doctors that these are mental disorders. You have the drug company pressure. And on top of that, and really a devastating and terrible thing in the United States, not many other countries, for a doctor to get paid, he has to have a diagnosis, or she has to have a diagnosis. It should be that a diagnosis is a last resort. Medication comes after a very thorough evaluation, a period of watchful waiting, of counseling, of, of, of brief psychotherapy. Instead, a diagnosis must be made almost immediately. And for primary care doctors, that means seven minutes. So there's a rush to judgment. And once you give the diagnosis, the pill seems like the most normal thing in the world. The diagnosis, so easy to give, is very hard to withdraw. Once it gets into the records, a person's life can be haunted by it in ways you couldn't predict after that seven-minute appointment. The media has had a, a, a very positive influence lately in making people skeptical about diagnosis. But previously, the tendency was to trumpet the new findings, to trumpet the new medication, to be an extension of drug company marketing. If we're going to solve this problem, we're going to have to have multiple, not just single solutions. And everyone might be discouraged by the disparity of power of the forces. It's a truly a David and Goliath problem with multiple forces promoting overdiagnosis, promoting overtreatment, and very, very weak um, forces trying to uh, correct this. But there's good news. Uh, the first part is that the David and Goliath battle against the tobacco industry, which seemed equally uh, futile 25 years ago, was actually won. That right sometimes does make for might. And the other thing is that this problem of over-testing, over-diagnosis, and over-treatment is true throughout medicine. It's not just psychiatry. And the rest of medicine is really catching on to this very, very quickly. And if we can solve the problem of, of over-diagnosis and over-treatment throughout medicine, psychiatry, and, and the mental health professions, I think, will follow behind. But So how are we going to do that? You're talking about David and Goliath. And so we, as the consumer, look, can you give us specific examples? I go to my physician, uh, I get, well, you know, I, as a lay person, uh, my, and I like to be really specific because I think people can understand this, put a face on it. I walk, you know, my, I'm suffering from, from a loss, for instance. Uh, you know, my husband died six months ago. Uh, the first thing they're going to tell me is, take some kind of a anti-anxiety pill or an antidepressant or whatever. Um, so what do you do as the consumer, as the, as, as, as the patient? I mean, what are you going to say? How do you... <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, the best protection against the kind of commercialization of everyday life by the drug companies and a careless uh, diagnostic and treatment practice by physicians, the best defense is to be informed. Be informed to protect yourself. Be informed to protect your kids. Realize that there's an excessive use of pills, that we're a pill-happy society, that the pill as a solution for every problem has become way overdone to the point where the harms for many people outweigh the benefits, that medication should only be used for problems that are severe, that are enduring, pervasive, that fit the uh, classic uh, descriptions in the DSM. If a doctor gives you a diagnosis and a suggested treatment after seven minutes, there's no reason to ever believe it. 
especially for kids, because kids are really hard to diagnose. They change so much from week to week and visit to visit. There's so much influence by developmental differences, by family, school, and peer stress. It's ridiculous to think that anyone could know what their problem is on one visit, much less a visit of just seven minutes. So I would be a very informed consumer, a very informed parent. I would always have lots of questions. I would um, check the doctor's diagnosis by looking up the um, criteria in the book myself. I would not accept the diagnosis if it didn't fit. And often these diagnoses don't fit because they're made in such a rushed and careless fashion. Always ask questions. Never go to any kind of doctor without questions. Um, and if you don't get sensible, common sense answers, there's nothing rocket science about any of this. Don't accept the diagnosis. Get second and third opinions. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. And I think that as I'm listening to you, that's something that I certainly would want to do as a consumer. However, what about the time factor? I mean, you're talking about these doctors who have seven minutes. They're not going to give you more than seven minutes for a lot of reasons. Um, So you've got your seven-minute time factor. You've got parents who are overburdened, overworked, two or three kids. They don't have time either, or or I think that sometimes they feel that they don't have time, so they're not going to go for a second opinion or a third opinion. And they do and I keep saying the quick fix, which is that that pill, that medication. So you've got to get out of it. You have to change attitudes, don't you? You have to really feel it. You know, you're in it for the long run, and in the long run, it's it's better to take the time now and get the second or third opinion, not take the medication right away. Um, I know they do it a lot for, uh, you know, this, what is it, ADD for little, for boys. I mean, when they're younger and they're running around and the testosterone is, is raging and, and then they prescribe medication for them to, what, Ritalin, to, um, to calm them down rather than to court, sort of let it take its course developmentally. And, and, you know, boys tend to be more active than little girls, say, when they're younger. I mean, that's a good example. Yeah, I, I think that um, never accept a diagnosis after seven minutes. Never accept a free sample as a reasonable treatment decision. Um, in terms of taking the time, would you take the time to buy a house? buy a car to get married, you don't rush into these lifelong decisions. I think that getting a psychiatric diagnosis and taking pills, starting pills, especially in kids where it may go on for years, maybe a lifetime, that's a very big decision. Should never be made casually, should never be made for minor problems, should never be made by people who may not be expert in it. The ADD thing is amazing. You will not believe what I'm about to tell you. No, I will believe it, but go ahead, tell no, us all. You will, you will not you will not believe it because I, I don't believe it. And it's the best study ever done. There have been uh, confirmations in other countries. In Canada, they looked at a million kids. And guess what the best predictor of ADD was, except for gender? The, the second best predictor was birth date. And the reason for this is that the youngest kid in the class, especially a boy, is almost twice as likely is the older kid, oldest kid in the class to get a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. What we've done is turn the normal immaturity of the youngest kid in the class into a mental disorder. And all too often that means treating it with a pill. We spend almost $10 billion in the U.S. alone on stimulant medication. Wouldn't it be better to be spending a lot of that money that's now inappropriately spent medicalizing kids for being young. Wouldn't it be better to spend that money on smaller class sizes so teachers wouldn't be so harried? 
could pay more attention to the individual needs of the kids in the class, wouldn't it be better to have more gym periods so that fidgety kids, especially the younger kids who are more likely to be fidgety? Yeah, but we're doing a, the opposite of that. We're taking away the gym programs. We're doing exactly bingo. the opposite because of the, you know, the lack of monies. And so the first thing to go is recess and gym. And uh, so we're, we're going bingo. in the other direction. Bingo. That's the problem. And in the last 20 years, because of the drug company's ability to advertise, market to doctors, mislead the public, fool parents, because of the fact that um, they have new expensive products. In the old days, the Ritalin was really cheap, pennies a pill. They have expensive products. They can really spend money advertising them. The drug company revenue for stimulants has gone up 50 times in 20 years. And we're wasting a lot of money... We don't know the impact of these medicines on kids' brains over the long run. Take a powerful medication and an immature brain, and who knows what happens over the long run. And that's okay if a kid really needs it. And maybe 1% or 2% of kids really need the medication, maybe 3 But we're now giving the medication to 6% of all kids in the age group of 4 to 17. 11% of kids in that age group now get a diagnosis of attention deficit. And by the time they're 18, it'll be about 15% of all our kids will get a diagnosis. And currently, 20% of boys get the diagnosis, 10% of boys. Get that, 10% of teenage boys are on medication. This is absolutely crazy. It's commercializing the problems of growing up, turning childhood into a disease. Parents have to be very wary, protect their children. Uh, Doctor, we also, I think... um Dr. Francis, we do that at the other end of the, uh, you know, with our senior citizens as well. Uh, People are living into their 80s and 90s, and some of the psychological changes that occur, which are normal and part of the aging process, doctors are right, the gerontologists, whoever they are out there, medicating our our elderly and making them sick. And I can give you, you know, I'm sort of in the middle there. I have an older mother in her uh, 90s, and... uh, she has a to be and she has a, a plastic bag full of medication that she's been pres- prescribed that she has never taken. Because yeah, the average person over sixty five is now taking about six or seven pills. Yeah, we don't clear them as well as we get older. They interact with one another. There's usually no one doctor giving all the pills, so no one's really in charge. And it really gets terrible when you get to nursing homes. If you're in a nursing home, you have to go to the bathroom, and you're in a wheelchair, and you can't get there by yourself be very unpleasant. Nursing homes are terribly understaffed. If you get agitated because you really have to go to the bathroom, it's almost as likely that you'll get a pill as you'll get wheeled to um, relief. The um, situation in nursing homes is a terrific over-medication with um, antipsychotic medications, often inappropriate. We should be treating the problem of understaffed nursing homes, not treating the patients with pills. And the tragedy is that the pills shorten life expectancy. So once someone goes on them, it's convenient for the nursing home, but it's going to reduce the lifespan of that individual. Just from a personal standpoint, I mean, I've had several friends who have actually had to go down to nursing homes in Florida, confront the doctors, confront the nursing staff, so that their their parent uh, doesn't isn't taking the medication, you know, because they've been overdosing them, and then they get they they improve. It's it's amazing, and I could list you probably three or four examples of that. Um, well, I could give you I could give you during my career hundreds to thousands of examples of people 
who get better when you reduce their medicine. And very often people coming in are coming in with symptoms that are really side effects or complications of medicine that they didn't need at the beginning in the first place that often when a person doesn't respond to the first medicine, they get put on a second medicine and sometimes they develop side effects that result in a third medicine. I want it understood though that the people who really need medicine really need medicine. I'm, I'm on a crusade to reduce over-diagnosis and over-treatment, but equally important, we're neglecting the people who really need it. If you have a severe mental illness in the United States now, you're probably in the worst time and the worst place ever to have a severe illness because you're very likely to be on the street or in prison, to be neglected. And once in prison, the um, consequences are horrible because psychiatric patients are not good at defending themselves against physical and sexual abuse. They very often don't follow the routines well and they wind up in solitary confinement. And that can drive anyone crazy. It really drives them crazy. So there's a twofold paradox here. It's equally important that we reduce the, the amount of medication that we give to people who don't need it, but we should be providing much better access the treatment for people to do, and what we're doing now to the severely ill is, is, is often barbaric. You wouldn't want to see it. So, Dr. Francis, what do we do about the fact that insurance companies won't pay for, say, long-term counseling? You, you know, you have six weeks, you have to be cured in six weeks, and that's it, and then, and then they won't pay for psychiatric visits. This is the dumbest thing in the world, and it comes from the insurance companies not having a long-term stake in the patients because people switch companies so often. So what they worry about is, I want to reduce the number of visits and costs for the next three months. They don't think about the fact that if a person gets a diagnosis they don't need um, too quickly and gets medication they don't need uh, too carelessly, that very often that person will be a lifetime very expensive proposition. And six to 12 sessions of psychotherapy can prevent a lifetime of medication. The whole system, the way we do insurance, is irrational. And this would seem completely crazy, except the whole medical system in the United States is pretty crazy, that we provide about, I don't know, maybe 60-70% more for medical care for each person in our country than anywhere else in the world. And we have lousy outcomes. That throughout the whole of medical and surgical practice, we over-treat people who don't need it, and until recently, we're terribly neglecting people who do. The only hope is that the system is now so outrageous. What I often say is that if you wanted to destroy the United States, one of the ways of doing it would be to give us our medical system. It's a crazy, irrational system. And it, it's a remarkably costly, and it doesn't provide good care. The hope is that it's so irrational that gradually we will be in to be able to do something that makes sense. And well, that would be would look at the misallocation of current resources and try to correct it. Yeah, well, are you the lone figure out there doing that, or is there a concerted effort uh, to uh, expound upon everything we've been talking about, that you've been talking about on the show, your book, over, um, Saving Normal? Uh, are you the lone voice? In medicine at large, no. I'm just a a small voice amongst a a very large group of very smart people all around the world that are are beginning to fight a very good and effective fight. And we have as a huge ally in this the um, British Medical Journal, which has been the lead. We have a thing called Choosing Wisely in Medicine. People should Google that. This is medical specialties, 50 of them, all around the world, 13 different countries, beginning to look at how 
they are, in each instance, over-diagnosing and over-treating. And even the American Psychiatric Association has come out recently with um, statements about the over-diagnosis and overuse of, of antipsychotics. I think it's been much less publicized in psychiatry. We're a little bit behind the curve, and I don't think we're going to cure ourselves from within. But I think the fact that all of medicine is moving in this direction and the fact that cost containment is in the same direction as better care. In this instance, being rational and giving the right amount of care is also cheaper. Giving too much care is more expensive. As we begin to eliminate the perverse commercial incentives that have led to this, I think that there's hope for the future. Well, that's good to hear. We have to say goodbye. Uh, I want to mention your book again, Saving Normal, an insider revolt, that's you, against out-of-control psychiatric diagnoses, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Everyday Life, Saving Normal, uh, Dr. Alan Francis, MD. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. And also you, that website, choosingwisely.com, is that the website that you just yep. mentioned? Yep, and I blog and Twitter like crazy, so if people are interested in getting more details, um, it's available on the Internet. Fantastic. Thanks for talking with us this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is award-winning journalist Gail Sheehy. She's a New York Times best-selling author, and her new book is Daring, My Passages, which is a memoir. Uh, she's the author of 16 books, including the classic New York Times bestseller Passages, uh, named by the Library of Congress as one of the ten most influential books of our time. Uh, she dared to blaze a trail in a man's world, uh, taking on assignments when she had no experience, traveling to war zones, often going undercover. She invented psychological character portraits of national and world figures like the Clintons, the Bushes, Margaret Thatcher. This is her new book we're going to be discussing, her memoir, Daring My Passages. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Gail. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, I'm one of those baby boomers, of course, who read your book, the original book, Passages, and it was uh, it was our Bible, but now you've reached the point, and I guess it went up to the age of, what, 54, the significant passages in our women's lives, um, up to menopause, uh, but now you've gone beyond that, and so I guess at this point you decided to write your own book, your own passages, your own memoir. Um, well, yeah, you know, my passages are were uh, un, uh, un, you know, unresearched. I had been writing about hundreds, maybe thousands of women and men over the course of 40 years. And when I moved into my 70s, I thought, well, it's about time to turn the lens on my own passages and see how I did. You know, what worked for me? Uh, how did I deal with failure? Uh, how did I make a success of my life despite a lot of uh, roadblocks and a lot of gender barriers, of course. Uh, being a, a, a girl journalist in the early 60s when we were all confined to the women's department. So it was a, it was a three-year excavation process, really like pulling your ribs apart and digging underneath <laughs> uh, and finding uh, out many surprises. Uh, so what were some of those surprises? Let's take it through your, well, from the beginning, because you talk about those, what you succeeded at, what you didn't see, succeed at, and separate those into the specific passages that you've gone through. Um, what were some of the surprises for you? I mean, because it was a three-year period of what, sort of self-examination and, and then... Yeah, right, and, yeah. and recalling all the, the very exciting things that I did, but... One of the first things I, <clears throat> I realized in writing the childhood chapter, which I really wasn't crazy about doing because nothing terribly dramatic happened to me. I didn't turn out to have a mafia uh, mobster relative or, you know, I wasn't uh, kidnapped. But I did find that <clears throat> my grandmother was my pole star. And often that's true for kids where there might be a dysfunctional family. Uh, and she used to uh, listen to a program with me on the Saturday mornings called Grand Central Station, Crossroads of a Million Private Lives. And that excited me so much, and it excited the writer in me, uh, which had been born when I was seven years old. My grandmother gave me my first typewriter. And just being able to hit those keys and make swap, swap, swap made me feel like I was actually writing a book. Uh, so I wanted to find some interesting characters. How was I going to find them in a sleepy suburb? So I, wanted, I asked my grandmother if she would keep my secret if I snuck in on the train when I was, this was nine years old, 
and went to Grand Central Station to see those crossroads of a million private lives. And she did. And I took the train. I was too little to even get my legs up on the high stairs of the washboard train so somebody would have to boost me. Uh, but I'd get there, and I'd run up to the balcony overlooking the main terminal, and then <clears throat> I'd look out for people. I'd see a man with a big borsalino hat and a, meeting a woman with um, black glasses, and I'd say, they must be communists. And then I'd start making up a story about communists, which I knew nothing about except from social studies class. Uh, and that would that started me off on writing. Well, so is that the? I mean, the title of the book, "Daring." Obviously, you're daring. I mean, what? And I think maybe that's the theme. I obviously I want to focus on that. How? What, what makes one daring? How did you become daring at seven years old? I mean, yes, you had the support of your grandmother, but what seven-year-old or nine-year-old would take a train into Grand Central Station and uh, do what you did? I mean, you kind of started off as this daring young woman. Well, you know, it becomes a habit. And I think I had two things going for me. First of all, we didn't have helicopter parents in those days. This was the 50s. And um, we rode our bikes everywhere. There wasn't that much danger on the streets. And, you know, we weren't the centerpiece of our parents' lives. Uh, We were kind of, we filled out the family album and we were, you know, uh, but they weren't watching us all the time. So we could do things like play in the woods with boys and have tree houses and I used to take a broomstick down to the harbor when the ice would break up on the Marriott Harbor, and I'd hop from one iceberg to another. And that's kind of crazy, but I didn't fall in, and I knew how to swim because my parents taught me when I was three, since we lived close to water. And one study that I read, very interesting study, observing young children, those who become most adventurous and most confident about being in the world are those who were allowed to play with um, scissors and knives rather early in their toddler years and learn how to handle them well, uh, who can play near fire, near water, and who were allowed to have some free play in the woods or someplace where their parents don't know exactly where they are for an hour or so, uh, and, you know, bump in, bump their knees and, you know, try to eat something they think is a mushroom, but it's something poisonous, makes them a little sick. And they learn a lot about the world uh, without having somebody, uh, you know, filtering everything for them. So I think well, that I think was- that I mean, you were allowed to navigate your world on your own, and I think that whole, you know, that whole process of being able to do that um, led you to, to to be daring, I guess, from stage to stage. But I think we're doing, in terms of child rearing practices, we're doing exactly the opposite, from putting rubber bumpers on coffee tables so the kid doesn't bump his head. To I mean, you can. <laughs> I don't know what kind of daring person that's going to uh, create, but but that's an example, and uh, we're laughing at it, but uh, I'm not so sure that we should be laughing. All right, so that's when you were younger. Okay, next stage, can we kind of go forward with that? Because this was the beginning. This was the groundwork for you to be the daring young woman that you were, and now, of course, now we're... I think it's more difficult, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Sometimes it's more difficult as we age to continue to be daring. There There are other challenges... Let me tell you about a, a dumb dare that I did, because um, <clears throat> we all do those, and especially, you know, between the late teens and early 20s. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so I had just gone to the University of Vermont, and I had a leftover boyfriend, uh, and he insisted that he come up and we elope. And that sounded very romantic, so 
he drove up late at night to my dorm at the University of Vermont uh, and with a pickup truck with an extension ladder and, you know, put the ladder up to the third floor at midnight and all my girlfriends came to the window in their rag curlers and sang me down the, the ladder and into his arms. It was so romantic, except that I couldn't wait to call my mother before we got to the Vermont border um, and just kind of reach out and then say, Mom, um, I'm eloping uh, with a surgeon. And she said, are you talking about McCarthy? He said, no, yes. And she said, he's a tree surgeon. <laughs> I said, I know, but... <laughs> and the next thing I said, well, can I talk to Dad? And she said, well, uh, he's busy right now. He's looking for his shotgun. <laughs> so, uh, that I had to uh, eat humble pie. My mother talked me home. She was so wise. You know, just talking about what a nice wedding it would be if we came home and planned it and it could be in the backyard and we would have fun shopping for a dress and, you know, she just talked to me home so that she could, you know, talk sense into me. And by the next day, I was calling my professors and asking if they would forgive me for my foolish escapade. Uh, and when they all agreed to take me back, because this is only the third week of college, I became so... Uh, in love with learning and, and valued it so highly that I became a born-again virgin until I got married five years later. And who did you finally marry five years later? Not, obviously not the tree surgeon. but No. <laughs> I, I actually married a medical student uh, who was going to really you know, give his all to the world, and I, I believed in him so strongly, and the whole plan was uh, I would put him through medical school by working, and he would uh, then, you know, make the money so that I could write uh, from home and be with our children. Except it blew up in my face when I was 28 years old, and he was having an affair that he couldn't seem to break, and I couldn't live with that. So I had to dare to leave the marriage while we had a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And it was not cool being a single mother in the 60s. Well, uh, well, before you go on, you had to dare to leave the marriage, because I think that's a... Very difficult thing to do, especially, as you say, with, with a child and being a single mother. So what was it in you? Why, how were you able to do that, especially at that? What, what year was that? It was 1968. Yeah, 68. Uh, so that's a tough time for single mothers, obviously, very different than it is even now. I mean, what... Actually, you, sorry, it was 1970. So it was actually the dawn of the women's movement, uh, which I was wrestling with uh, along with everybody else at the time. But here's why I had to do it. Uh, I think you can only really survive with self-respect if you trust your partner uh, and feel fully committed. And since he was not fully committed, he was um, really threatened by my success. I was already uh, writing for the New York Herald Tribune and then for New York Magazine. Uh, and so I had some notoriety and... He was just getting started uh, in his in residency. He hadn't even been able to earn a living yet, and he was five years older and couldn't really qualify for a credit card. So having, at that time, having a, a wife who was successful while he didn't yet have a career path was overwhelming to him, so he looked for solace somewhere else. And I couldn't live with that. Uh, and I'm glad that I didn't because it would have infected me, it would have infected our daughter, uh, and I, I never would have learned how to earn a living 
Uh, and so I had to dare to leave a dream that I thought was intact. And try well, to I, well, you use the word dream. It was a dream. It really didn't turn out to be a reality. And I guess you had to face the reality of what really was happening. But you mentioned the word trust because I think that's really important. I mean, you hear people say, women particularly, well, I don't love him anymore. He doesn't love me and love and love. I'm not sure what exactly the definition of that is. But really trust. If you don't trust the other person, that kind of, I, 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 you know, motivated you to be able to leave this marriage if you can't trust the person you're with. Absolutely. I think that's, that's the beginning. And self-respect. And I don't think you can really be, respect yourself if you feel that you're being betrayed constantly by your partner in life. So uh, it was the best decision I could make, as, a pain, as painful as it was. And it, it forced me to dare to become a freelance journalist, which is still a very difficult thing to make a consistent living because I wanted to be able to be home with my daughter. She was too young to leave. So I had to quit my dream job <coughs> at the Herald Tribune and freelance. Uh, and it took a while to get established. I wrote a book. Uh, my first book was a novel. <coughs> I was very proud of that. But it failed. And it failed because it was right at the beginning of the women's movement and it reflected a marriage that fell apart for no uh, clear reason, the reason I gave you. That wasn't something that people were focusing on yet, men who were threatened by women who were successful. So it was sort of uh, a reviewer who wanted to put me back in the box. Well, no one was able to put you back in the box. That we know. I want to skip forward to now. You're in your 70s. What is the what are the challenges? Because there are so many women out there today who baby boomers turning 70. It's a huge population, big demographics, facing the next 20 years perhaps uh, of having to uh, be daring. Uh, what do they do? How do you do it? Because then you have. You know, usually or very often there are physical challenges that are different than when you're younger. Uh, you've lost, I mean, you lost the love of your life you were, uh, that you yeah. were with for 25 years. Uh, so how do you, how can you be daring in the context of that? Because I don't think your situation is necessarily unique. Not at all. And I think we just have to use the technology that the younger generation has given us. Um, you don't have, let's say you have arthritis, you can't travel very easily, but you have, you know, you or you have your own website, uh, you can Skype, you can um, do uh, uh, webinars, you can teach long distance, uh, you can do all kinds of things from your home that weren't possible, you know, even 10 years ago. So that's one way. And I think, as I see cards of women in their 70s who are still out there and very uh, lively uh, in the marketplace, they list three or four things that they can do. They can be a moderator. They can be a facilitator. They're a a life expert. (laughs) And many of us in our 70s, you know, do have this, I call them the sage 70s. So we know as much as we're ever going to know, and it's, before we start forgetting what we know. <laughs> so it's a good time to uh, be some kind of a coach, uh, an executive coach or a life coach uh, or a writing coach. Uh, and many, many women in their 70s write books. 
And now, so in other words, you don't have to be in a position where you have to do face-to-face stuff, which takes up a lot of, can take up a lot of physical energy, uh, can be costly. Uh, we have the advantages of having our, com- our computer and doing as you described. Now, the Daring Project, which kind of le- um, leading into that, what is the Daring Project? Because that, that's not something that you have just created. Uh, what's that all about? Well, this is my legacy. I love this project. This is an extension of the book. Uh, where I'm inviting women to send in stories about a daring moment early in their career that allowed them to catapult ahead or a daring change that they've, that they've made in their lives anywhere along the line. Uh, and there are women in their 60s and 70s who are sending in wonderful daring stories. Uh, one woman was 59 and uh, she was widowed and had a boyfriend and together, she, she'd had a very bad accident, so she wasn't able to walk very well. So she and her boyfriend bought an, uh, an RV, huge thing that they could live in and, and travel across the country. Well, then that romance broke up, so she's left with this multi-ton home on wheels <laughs> a partner, and she couldn't even quite climb up to the cab without getting a push. But she decided that she was going to go on her, her own, and hooked up with a service that connected people who were driving RVs with uh, vineyards and farms. And you could stop there and, you know, do a wine tasting and spend the night free uh, to sleep it off. And you could go to a farm and help feed the animals and get fed yourself. And meanwhile, meet people along the way. And that's what she did. And it has been the wonder- most wonderful adventure of her life. Uh, and she's now... Uh, in starting a new business where she's helping other women to take cross-country trips on their own. So things like that that are uh, women in their 60s and 70s are so free. You know, they're grand, very often grandparents, but that's not a full-time job like looking after, you know, uh, boomerang kids in their 20s uh, if you do it when you can. But you're really free to roam. And uh, there's wonderful things out there that you can do. So go to my website, Sheehy Daring Project, and look up the stories. There's only two new stories, and then there's a, a tab that says stories. You can just go on down until you find one that matches your age group or your interests. So what you do is, and then if you want to submit something that you think you have a story, uh, the website is interactive, so you just send your story, and then then what? Then you... Then I, if I want to run it, I'll usually call you or email you and ask some more questions, and then, uh, you know, edit it and, and post it. So you get posted online, and you can tell all your friends, you know, to look up your story, uh, and it's, it's so it's useful for the person who sends it in and useful for many others who will read it and be inspired by it. That's exciting. Uh, You just mentioned one story. Uh, Any other stories that stand out for you? I would imagine you would get an enormous amount of responses because I think one of the things, we are a little bit more narcissistic these days than we were. People do like to tell their stories. So um, uh, weeding out the stories, I guess, and and finding the ones that are the most interesting or I guess would be the most helpful to other women. Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, the one that's up today is is about a D. Uh, D.Y.I. mother, a do-it-yourself mother. Uh, she's 40 years old. Uh, she froze her eggs when she was 38. She had had a number of uh, 
romances, but none of them panned out into marriage. Very uh, smart journalist. And uh, she uh, said, if, if I don't have a, a husband by the time I'm 40, I'm going to have a baby on my own. And that's what she did. And she, she was very funny about it. She says, I got knocked up on a houseboat by a midwife. Uh, <laughs> she selected the sperm of a, a very Aryan young man who uh, was sympathetic to women who uh, didn't have a partner. And she has the most beautiful blonde, blue-eyed baby. She is very dark-haired and a Jewish woman, but she wanted that kind of a baby. So she is now living... Uh, she had to move off the houseboat because he now runs around. He's two years old. And she finds that actually... It's, there's quite a relief in being uh, a single mom because she gets to make all the decisions. She doesn't have to negotiate. And she says she has enough trouble negotiating with her two-year-old son. She works from home uh, part-time. She has her own business, uh, writing, uh, counseling other people on how to do websites. And then she goes to uh, an office two days a week and works for a woman who also has a young child, so understands her need for... Uh, working around her son's schedule. That's an interesting story. That's an example of one of the stories. Those are great stories. Both of those stories are. So sheheedaringproject.com, if anybody has a story and, and wants to submit it, do that. Um, and your book is, you can buy it on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere. Um, we have about a minute left, so tell us any uh, any other website. Is that the website we need to go to or... Um, Hey, Daring Project is the website to go to. I have an author site that's just my name, but I want you to get involved with my project. And we want to make this a daring movement because lots of young women today, because they came of age during, you know, an economic uh, crash, are worried or looking for something very secure and safe. The 20s are the time to take chances. It's a time to fail. And only by failing and getting up from it, one more time, then you get knocked down. Are you actually going to find a way to do something new, do something that is really valuable? Great advice. It's been great talking to you today. Uh, maybe I'll send you a story, who knows, on your daring project. I'd love and, it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gail Sheehy, um, award-winning journalist, uh, New York Times bestselling author, and who, her new book is Daring, My Passages. It's her memoir. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, Catherine. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 